now, our feature presentation. Welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser. And for today's interview, I have with me Brian Franklin. You may know Brian because he was a musician for a very long time. He still is a musician, but he was a musician for a long time in South Florida. You can even see he's sporting the Churchill's t-shirt. Brian Franklin, welcome in. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So how you doing? What are you up to these days? So uh, out here in L.A., I've been out here for full time for four years. I was I was kind of bouncing back and forth for nine years before that. But uh, but uh, these days I uh, we have a company my wife and I started called Vows and Speeches, and we write wedding speeches, custom vows and ceremony scripts for people that need help uh, putting those things together. So it's a new business, kind of new to the wedding industry, and we're uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. We're just featured in the New York Times, and wow. uh, so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's my new endeavor, uh, relatively new, a couple of years, and uh, and you know, pouring our hearts into that, really. Well, good for you. That's very cool. Do you think yeah. anything? Do you think anything that you did musically helped kind of prepare you for what you're doing now? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I think when I look at speeches and this is, I mean, this is not just with this business, but before this, I was doing political work. And uh, um, I think when you look at speeches or, or presentations or they, I think of them very similarly to set lists. I mean, I think that there, you have these vignettes that might, you know, analogous to songs and then you put them together. And uh, I think it has the pacing of a set list in, in my mind. You have to, you have moments where you drip, dip down in energy. Maybe that's the acoustic portion of your rock and roll band, you know, <laughs> or your rock and roll show. And then, uh, and then you lift them back up into a, a crescendo. You know, you want these things to end almost like a, the end of a rock show. So to me, even whether you're doing two minutes of speech of a speech or a 40 minute presentation i always think of it in those terms and you're no stranger to writing songs and set lists because you have a lot of songs in your catalog i do yeah you yeah, certainly I was, do so i was a very unhappy kid i, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote a lot <laughs> and i know we'll get into a lot of that as we kind of go through the interview but let's kind of go back a bit let's go back to your early beginning so where'd you grow up so we bounced around a little bit. My I was born in uh, in New York City. My parents uh, lived in Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, right across the George Washington Bridge, and uh, we lived there until I was four. We moved. My dad was in sales and ophthalmological sales, and so we we moved to Los Angeles. And I lived uh, about a mile away from my future wife. Uh, um, we never we didn't know each other, but then we moved back. I, I went to like kindergarten, I think part of first grade out here. Then we moved back to Teaneck and lived there for a few more years. And then we moved to Irvine, California. And I lived there until from fifth grade uh, to the, about the end of my senior, sorry, but in my junior year in high school. And that's when I moved to uh, Miami, which was on the coldest day on record in Miami. We moved to Miami. We left California in the heat wave 
in the middle of winter. And then uh, I think we, I can't remember, I think it was December 1st, but I'm not sure, in 1989. And we moved to, to Miami. It was one of the coldest days ever. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, I've been watching Miami Vice. <laughs> everybody's everybody's dressed like it's warm. And I got off the plane and it was freezing, absolutely freezing. But yeah. uh, settled into Miami and then wound up uh, in Miami for, you know, 20 some odd years. So where'd you go to school in, in Miami? Basically did my, the end of my junior year and uh, senior year at Miami Palmetto. And then sometime in, and that's where I, I met Jeff Rollison. One of the first people I met was Jeff Rollison, who was in Strange Love and The Curious Air. And, uh, you know, the people in the singer-songwriter community would would uh, remember his uh, evil ignorant cassette of the months that he would get local artists to do some kind of lo-fi thing and and uh he would run around and hand people cassettes but anyway i met him we were both uh in our in high school at palmetto and i don't know i guess i looked like i should be in a band and i started talking to him <laughs> or he started how talking you, to me and the- how did you look back then I, I you know i was i i had curly hair and i i came in uh, and I, I, had, I looked older than I was and everybody thought I was a narc and it didn't matter how many drugs I did in high school. They all like the, the, the resident weed dealer was just absolutely not buying it and would not, cause I'd come in from California. I looked, and I think this was like when 21 jump street had just come out and, or, or somewhere in that range. And so people were like on the lookout and I, I was, you know, an older looking senior in high school and with a beard and, and I, th- I think short hair at the time, but I was trying to grow it out, but growing, growing your hair out with like the kind of hair I had was not an easy task. It took, it took a while. You know? What were you listening to at that point in your life? I, I liked Van Halen, but I never really got into glam bands for the most part. I was I was not into that scene. Although I realized very quickly that that if you're going to find girls, then you had to play some of those songs. So like, so I want to play in things like Extreme and you know any you know anything that would capture somebody's attention in those days. But I, I personally. In those days, I was listening to Petty. I was listening to the Black Crows. I was a big Springsteen fan, although I think that was when he came out with his, like his non-E Street band part of the section. I, I, somewhere in there, he was starting to drift away from the from the E Street band, and and I didn't like the new stuff. But but uh, I I liked the Stones. I was I was more of a classic rock guy. Stevie Ray Vaughan. I was real. I was getting into Clapton and Stevie Ray Vaughan and trying to learn all the blues licks and. And all of the things like that. I was big BB King fan and Ray Charles, and uh, uh, but I was also into uh, I was also into the Clash and Ramones and um, uh, more of the Clash and um, and some of the uh, stuff of the day, I guess. Like you know, I liked the the Lemonheads and sure. And the- season you know i wasn't i wasn't a giant fan i didn't dive in that far into that scene but i i, I loved it and, and that played a certainly played a, a a part in my life because there were people that were heavily influenced like uh, by the pixies for example or the remotes like rob elba who then later becomes you know a major force in my life so but yeah to- i was more of a, a, a classic rock you know saying i was trying to be the next you know singer songwriter guy you know <laughs> There's a song that you wrote called The Long Nightmare. Is that right? Long yeah. Nightmare. Yeah. 
And when I hear that song, you mentioned Springsteen. It reminds me of the sound on his album, Nebraska. Was that an album that was an influence Absolutely. to you? Yeah, I remember that was one of the first song or first albums. Well, my dad had it on record, but I know like that was one of the first ones he got on CD too. But uh, but that was a, a huge album in my household. I mean, I loved, loved that album. And that to me was, it's interesting because there's been a lot of attention to it lately. Uh, Warren Hayes came out with a book on it. And and uh, I think they're, I just read they're doing a movie about that album. And uh, that was a huge album for me, for sure. I mean, it was, it was something that connected the dots between Dylan and Springsteen to me more so than even his early stuff. Yeah, you could definitely hear that influence for sure in your music and in some of the songs, especially that one, at yeah. least to me. So Yeah, and Bob Dylan was a big thing in my house too. I and mean, that's something I had to learn. It was just one, it was just required. How did you learn to play guitar in the first place? So my uh my aunt was the bass player in a band called Kid Creole and the Coconuts, which uh was one of the first, I th- one of the first bands uh of color on MTV. If not the first, I think there was some debate about them versus uh, Michael Jackson, but, uh, but she was, she was pretty in, in back in the early eighties, she was uh, fairly well known in music circles. And uh, in fact, there, there's a fun story and it, I, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's fake. It, it, my understanding is, is that uh, both sting and uh, Prince at one point tried to recruit her as a bass player. And, I was a big, that was another band I meant, I forgot to mention police were a huge band for me. And, um, and then when they broke up, apparently Sting asked Carol to be uh, on tour with him on, on the Dream of the Blue Turtles tour. And he, and she said no, that she preferred being in Kid Creole with the Coconuts. And I, I think I, I think that's about when I started to uh, think that maybe she didn't know what she was talking about. <laughs> she was a ma- monster bass player, and she, you know, she had instruments in the house and, and, and my, at my grandparents' house. And I, I think I just always wanted to gra- to be a part of that. And uh, and then I became obsessed with Springsteen very early on. My parents were big fans and took me to. That was my one of my first made like real big concerts I ever went to. And uh, when I was eight years old, went to the Brendan Burn Arena and uh, saw him and the River Tour, and, and it just kind of changed my life. And and so I from there, I think that was really where I started to pick up the guitar. And and of course, like many people do, I had. A, a difficult guitar to play it at the first one. And I put it down for a little bit. And, and then I think somewhere around 10 or 11, when I realized I didn't have the, the natural looks of some of my friends, I, I, <laughs> I decided that it was either going to be sports or music. And I tried to do both and I was prone to injury. So it became music more so than anything. You know? I can understand that. <laughs> what sport, what sport were you trying to, uh... I played football, but you know, I, I, I I was good at it when I was injured, but I was always injured. And it was just, it was, it was just uh, not, not meant to be. I played, I, I also did a little discus and track and okay uh, and whatnot, but it was uh, mostly I was uh, uh football and I tried to make the basketball team, but I was again, you know, more clumsy than the, than talented. <laughs> like it was, my, my fingers couldn't get around to a lot of the cords. I got big hands. And, and so it, it took me a while to, to, figure out that I could do certain things really well, but if I tried to to rip it on guitar, I was probably not going to be as good as anybody. So I had to do something else. Uh, and it wasn't until I got into uh, 
Miami, uh, the Miami scene where really Jeff was the entry into um, some of the people that were developing in that area. And there was, uh, we, I, we were younger. I mean, when we finally broke into the scene, we were on the young end of that scene, we were probably four to five years younger than everybody else. And uh, th- that there was this whole Miami beach uh, music scene that had, um, uh, the chances and Sean Edelson and these guitar players that, uh, all these people that kind of came out of Miami beach high, uh, that, that were musicians that all knew each other. And then you had the high scene and it all congealed down in South beach around, you know, 92, 93, I think. What were some of the places you were going to, to see some of these artists bands play? Well, at first I couldn't get, I didn't have a fake ID. And he, and so it really depended on how my beard looked and, and, <laughs> and what the place was like. So like, there were a lot of places I just couldn't get into depending on if they were carding people or not. But, um, but I, so, I mean, the square was obviously one of the, the first places that I would go to see rock bands. I mean, I, I think I got into Cactus Cantina more easily. And so, um, cause I was, just trying to think of the dates here. I mean, I moved from Miami to plantation right before hurricane Andrew. So, um, so we would have, I would have just been at a, at a high school, I graduated in 91. So, um, so I was 19 still when I was, when I started to play around and, uh, thankfully there was, there was one bar in sunrise, Florida that became very important for me. It was called tunes. And it was run by these three brothers uh, whose family owns a, a series of strip clubs down there, <laughs> like uh, Jiggles off of, off of Broward and 95, a famously bad, uh, <laughs> really bad bottom barrel strip club. But but anyway, they opened this cartoon themed, uh, uh, cartoon and music themed uh, place in the strip mall. And that they had an open mic night and I started to go there and eventually I was running it for a little bit. And then uh, I started becoming the opener for bands that were coming in that were playing there that were larger. And one of the first, uh, the, the first two bands that of note that I remember are uh, in-house from West Palm beach and uh, which became very big and, uh, and natural causes. And I became friendly with, uh, with Keith chance and, uh, and, and Joel chance, the guitar player and, and particularly Arlen, uh, Arlen Filas and, uh, and I wound up being the official Broward opener for natural causes. So wherever they could have an opener and wherever there was a place to play, they would squeeze me in as a acoustic guitar player and open up for them. And, and uh, they were so kind to me. I mean, they was really a band that, that helped me tremendously. And then, and then at the same time, I wound up doing more or less the same thing with in-house where they would bring me up to the underground coffee works in plant in uh, West Palm beach. And I became a regular there and a regular opening up for them. And they had just started to play. They were a, a, a duo. And then they had a, uh, then they had a bass player, uh, uh, and a drummer, but then they eventually ended at Andy Stein as a guitar player, but Andy had a day job and, uh, and, he could only stay out so late. So they'd play these gigs and he'd play the first two sets and they would have me as like the stand in guitar player that would play the third set with them in a lot of these places. So, so I wound up this unofficial member of in-house sort of, uh, but they were very, very kind of having, having me open up. And then, uh, and then one day they were playing at uh, Stephen Talkhouse, and 
it was a big deal for them because they really didn't have a Miami following. Stephen Talkhouse was the place to, to play at that moment, I think, more so than it was. It was the fancy place to play uh, in, in Miami Beach, I think. And they squeezed me in on the bill. Uh, and, and I remember that's when I got introduced to uh, Magda Hiller. And Magda, uh, again, did the same thing. I wound up playing guitar with her, you know, invited me out to open up at the gigs or play songs anytime she saw me. So so uh, I, I was really brought uh, under a few different people's wings at the time. And, and it was through Magda that I met Diane Ward. Well, I, you know, actually, Zach um zach who was in dime store genies and all that, he, he i think he was the one that interested me diane but but magda introduced me to a whole bunch of the people in that scene uh uh rat um uh who else uh marianne fleming who i wound up playing with a little bit later on and uh and that was that was really when i started to play out and and no one cared how old I was I, somewhere in this period I turned uh 20 and and then uh, got introduced to Matt Sabatella and and then I wound up playing guitar in in Matt's band uh officially but I for a long time I was just bouncing around you know as a sideman playing anywhere I could but but opening up for all of these different artists in these places and then simultaneously trying to do solo stuff wherever the, they would let me uh sure. playing. I remember one of my first gigs was at this pomp place in this hole in Pompano Beach called McFly's. And I don't know if anyone ever played there besides me. <laughs> it seems like one of those places that I just happened to get a gig at that that was always in. It was like my dad and the bartender. And, you know, it would wound up call, I'd get paid 50 bucks and like for four hours of music. And, you know, my dad would wind up putting out like a hundred bucks you know, at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. good, though. I mean, you're just getting yourself started and you're looking for places yeah. to play and trying to, you it know, trying to. Yeah, trying to get yourself out there. So, were you writing a lot of music at that time, or were you just doing, yeah. a, or were you doing mostly covers? Yeah, I had started writing music in early in high school. I started writing songs, and they were terrible, of course. But um, towards the end of uh, high school, I I think I had written a couple of songs that that had some semblance of of structure and and that some people seem to like and uh and right from the beginning i had random weird people like oh well, you know we can help you and like we'll sign you to this or we'll try and say like i had a series of aborted bullshit things happen where where somebody knew somebody and it and it seemed like it was on the right track but then it would inevitably be bullshit and fall apart but but what it did also was it kept stoking the idea that oh wow you you know you're just one good contact away from from making it and getting signed and and all of that and and so uh so i was constantly trying to write the next song and trying to write you know refine it and and i think it was i think by the time i was uh 20 i had you know a full set of 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 songs that were um presentable if, and and i had started to get it because i was such a bad guitarist uh past a certain point i started to get into open tunings and writing in that in that format and and i i, I was good at that. that that worked for me i started playing slide and things like that so i started writing this stuff that you were, you just started experimenting and 
And the place that really became central to me was was a place called Blue Steel up on uh, 17th, I think, somewhere around there, 17th and and um, and Collins, I, I want to say. Uh, but it opened up and that became the like a songwriter's haven. It was it was a, I don't even know how to describe it. It was it was more like a collective. You'd go there on Tuesdays and that's when everybody was there. And if you had new material, you'd play it. And it was, it was, it, it wasn't an open mic because it was kind of an invite only deal. But, um, but Zach and Seven were running it and, and they were very, very kind to me and, and would always put me up and I would always play. And that's where I, I think that's where Rat and I really had our first talk. Uh, and he, um, he invited me over to sync studios and that was, that was the beginning, but, but blue steel was where you, you know, you'd had, I mean, Alex Diaz, Rich Lyle, Matt Sabatella, Diane Ward, Zach and seven, um, uh, Paul Raub was there, uh, Amine, uh, like uh, this, this whole singer songwriter crew, Marianne often. And that was such a, uh, a breeding ground for cool things. It was, it, you'd stay there. Everybody was, was uh, getting high in the bathroom and, and you know, like, get out there and start, start playing until you got too hungry. And then you went to Denny's, right. And, uh, <laughs> or you wind up at roses, have a few more beers and then go to <laughs> And then go to but, Denny's. <laughs> and then you go to Denny's, right. Four o'clock in the morning. And then you, you hope that you made it home on, you know, back, to, back on the 40 minute drive to plantation. And I right. call call my friends in California, my high school buddies in California, just to keep me awake on the way home. Yeah. It's still earlier there, right? <laughs> yeah. Matt and I had been, uh, playing for a while at this point, maybe a year. And, uh, we had started to do some recording and he had, we had done some showcases and that, and that balance was, was a lot of fun. It was me, Matt, uh, this guy, Jordan, Jordan Steele Lash, David Jaskis and, uh, Lee Frank for a little bit. Was there and, a name of the band? Sabatella. It was right after oh, Broken okay. Spectacles. Right after Broken Spectacles. It was Matt's band. And he was, he was, you know, writing some amazing material. And um so while we were doing that, I mean, I was really more known for being his guitar player at this point than any, you know, and, and the singer-songwriter crowd knew me, but generally speaking, outside of that, most people didn't. Uh and so I was talking to Rat, and Rat said, Yeah, come on, let's do the album. And I I uh, I was teaching guitar at the time I was in college and teaching guitar and um and I had borrowed a little bit of money to to make the CDs but I but we, we did the album in a week and it was fun I brought in Diane to sing and Matt was playing bass on it and my it was basically like partly Matt's band and uh Matt and Jordan and myself and a guy named Jim Jones uh, who was playing guitar and so we did this album in a week and I put it out. And then, uh, and then somebody uh, named Jim Murphy, who was working for the New York, uh, not New York Times, working for the New Times, uh, he uh, he wrote this great article about it, and in it, he there was a note about Springsteen or comparing it to Springsteen, that kind of thing. It was great. It was for me, it was it was awesome. I had gotten a little bit of coverage from. Uh, well, I, actually, bef- right before that, Melissa Rigari had written an article in in. At the time, it was called Excess, I think. And this article is, uh, I, I didn't 
I don't know what I was talking about. It's, it said something about sheep. I was just making stuff up. I had no idea. And uh, sheep. So there's, Wait, like I just made a joke about sheep. I think. <laughs> okay. Like I don't know. It was just. It was just. I, I knew that I, I I had no skills as far as media was concerned. Right. And uh, and I. You you, know, you were in college like, though at this time, right? I, I know, but I was dumb, you know. And so uh, so later on, uh, I mean, of course, later on, I wind up in media, but. Um, I, I I did this stuff and uh, and then Jim Murphy writes the article and it gets in the New Times and unbeknownst to me, there was a ANR rep named Dale Kawashima that worked for Mercury Records and at Mercury Polygram, and his way of finding artists was to read the you know the creative loafings in the New York Times and whatnot of, of or is my, I keep saying New York Times in the New Times, uh, the Miami New Times, the Miami New Times <laughs> in every you know th- those kinds of publications in every in every city sure. and scan for artists and and he happened to be a Springsteen fan, uh, so one day. I get this. I, I think I had a pager. <laughs> uh, we all did. <laughs> I, I think I had a pager, and and Diane got in touch with me, and I call her, and and she's like, "Yeah, I got this. I got this call from uh, Mercury Records, and they're trying to reach you." And I'm like, "Okay." And so I I called the guy back, and and uh, he wanted to hear the album, so I sent I FedExed him the album, and. And then, uh, and then it was one of these. Yeah, no, I really like it. Uh, you know, uh, um, well, maybe when uh, when I come to Miami, I'll probably be in Miami some at some point in the next year. I'll come down and see you. And uh, right then, I'm like, well, what if I came to you? Because I knew he was out in L.A. and I had le- just, you know, not too long ago had, had uh, uh, left L.A. You know, left Southern California, and I had all these friends out there and that I still kept in touch with. And I'm like, what do I, what if I come to you? And, and he's like, okay, yeah. You know, when can you come? And I'm like, so I, I book a ticket, I bring my guitar player and literally three weeks after the album was, or the article came out about the album, I was on a plane to LA and we were, we wanted to plan for the president of Mercury records in the boardroom, which, uh, which was bizarre because he had just come back from the gym and he was like in these tight gym shorts and, you know, uh, Ed Eckstein was his name, the child of Billy Eckstein, the jazz artist. And um, it, it went well, you know, we, they liked it. And, uh, and then the next night I had, uh, they had booked me a gig at the, uh, at this coffee house somewhere in Hollywood. And I was, it was very exciting. I had no idea what I was doing. So Jim and I played this thing, but all of my friends from Orange County came up, like we invaded the place and, you know, took it over and, and they went crazy for me. And it was, and, and so, you know, so that, that helped seal the deal for the gig. And, and, uh, uh, they offered me a, a publishing developmental deal. And, um, and the idea was to go write and record some new stuff in the hopes of getting, a, you know, moving this into a full fledged record contract. And, uh, everything was going great. Uh, I got the first check and then about three weeks after I got the check, the entire regime of Mercury got tossed and uh, Danny Goldberg took over and uh, and everybody that I knew there wound up on the way out. Uh, over time, we recorded some new stuff. I recorded my second album. I was still working with the A&R guy at Mercury who was trying to get me a gig at Capitol and somewhere else. And, and, uh, and then that didn't work out. Uh, we recorded the new album uh, and... And right after we recorded it, basically, uh, 
uh, my time with Mercury ended and they were like, well, we haven't even heard from you in, in six months or something like that. And I'm like, well, wait, I was working with Dale. And they're like, yeah, but you weren't working with us when you're signed to us. And I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, and you know, and that, and that experience really, really, I mean, Dale was a great guy and, and he was doing his best to, to both, uh, help me and also get a job, but with as an ANR place for someone else, but he was a big champion and I, and I really appreciated his, his uh, time. Uh, he was, he was at one point the president of ATV records and uh, working for Michael Jackson and he did yeah. a bunch of stuff with Prince and, and Springsteen went up. And so, um, but the real problem timing wise with the scene was that uh, there really weren't that many bands being signed like me uh at that moment it was more lilith fair there was a big singer songwriter push on the on the female side and that was the thing at that moment and then on the boy side i think it was probably more in sync and that kind of like boy band stuff yeah. but 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 on the rock side like they kept pushing me yeah like make it sound more like the wallflowers and i i wanted it to be more quirky and and radio head and edgy and you know i was really i wanted the sound i wanted the guitars to sound like johnny uh, you know, Greenwood. And, and of course, none of it sounded like any of it in the end. I mean, whatever came out of there was, was not like that. Yeah. And I but you wanted it, you wanted it more like you, you know, you didn't want it to be yeah. something else, right? Yeah. I just wanted it to be different. And, yeah. and, and it was just, I didn't have the production chops to do it myself. And, um, and Rat did his best with me, but, uh, but it, it, it wasn't to be. <laughs> so it ended. And, uh, and then I, you know, I had to redefine what my, my interest in music at that time. <laughs> yeah. 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 I imagine that was an interesting experience to go through. Uh, and then I've heard stories like that from other people too, where regimes right. change and then it changes the whole dynamic of whatever, oh, yeah. you were, whatever you were promised before. It's not that Arlen gotten, yeah, Arlen had gotten signed to to Island to a full fledged record contract and had you know famously gone up and played with the band and 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 Tom Dowd and I got you know I, I was lucky enough to watch Tom uh, behind the mixer and and hang out at Criteria listening to him record that album and and mix that album and and it it was so cool there was a lot of things that were happening but then like Arlen and I. Uh, both got canned by our record labels, I think, within a week of each other. And we were just like, God, you know, like, now what? Now what do we do? You know, we're refugees. Arlen wound up like selling his, like bootlegging his own CD out of it because he didn't technically own it. And, you know, I was just walking around like, yeah, it's over. You know? <laughs> but uh, do you remember yeah. getting any local radio play at this time? Uh yeah, Glenn Richards and Kimba were both, you know, uh, very friendly to us. And and uh, Nicole Sandler uh, was a fan and a friend, uh, and and would help push us a bit. And and uh, but but I wasn't, I you know, I really slipped in behind the scenes. It was it was such a random way to get signed. I didn't, I wasn't touring except with Diane's band later on. I did some touring, but I didn't do any touring. I got, I mean, the album had been out for three weeks. No one really, I was, I was Matt's lead guitar player. It really wasn't something uh, that was built on any momentum. It was just, I recorded it and got lucky and, and was trying to make the most out of it. Um, Sandra Schumann also, by the way, was a big, you know, she was very helpful. Um, um, Todd Anthony was, was really the first person to write about me at all. Um you know, I I had I was squeezing in there somewhere, like 
because people knew I had some talent, but but it wasn't based on any real work and outside of, you know, just playing in bands. So uh, so I think there was there were some people that were pretty surprised that it actually happened and people that weren't that surprised when it ended. (laughs) But it changed my life in in one regard, because I never from that point forward, I realized that if you're going to get anything done, my dad would have a saying, like, if you're not in the room, you're not in the deal. And from that point forward, anytime I thought there was an opportunity, I got on a plane. I went and talked to people. Like I, my big mistake there was not networking with the very people that were tasked with deciding these things. And, uh, and I should have gotten on the plane and talked to them in addition to working with Dale. And I just, I just didn't. And I, I just, was too young and too dumb to know it. So, uh, but that, but that from that point forward, everything I ever did from business or from music or business, I, I, I took a chance and I jumped on the plane and, and made sure I, where I got in the car and I made sure I had the meeting and, and it fundamentally changed the rest of my life. I know after that, you said you played more with uh, Diane Ward, who's been a guest yeah. on the podcast as well. So talk about your relationship with Diane and what was it like playing with her? Oh my God. Well, I mean, first of all, Diane, uh, you know, anybody of a certain age range, if you just say the word Diane, everybody knows who you're talking about. Like it was rarely, you rarely had to add the word. She was a superstar in the scene, you know, year after year, best female vocalist, best vocal, you know, she just the voice of an angel. She had to, she, but, but more than that, I think she had this Chrissy Hind, like Ed, like power to her uh, that, um, that put her on a different level. It, it was, you know, people used to make, and she she hated it, but they used to make comparisons to this one particular singer because of the way that she sounded. But really, I saw her more like Chrissy Hine because she had that delicacy, but she also had a lot of punk in her. And she's a hell of a drummer, like just a monster drummer. And just, she she loved to rock out. And so it was fun for me because I... You know, I never really were was in a band until later on that had uh, true punk underpinnings. Uh, but in Diane's band, when I was in it, it was Chris Sheldon, me, Diane, and and, and various different bass players over time. But but uh, but Chris was was kind of a punk uh, player and and really into the Police and the, some of the same influences that I had. And uh, and but we were always pushing to rock a little harder and to push it over the edge. And so there was a lot of fun dynamics in that band, but Diane and I, we, we just, our voices meld very, very well together. We liked writing together. We just, we're just really close kindred spirits. I mean, we just, she worked for us for many, many years. She, you know, she lived in my house for a while. Like she's, you know, she's just a great person. And, um, but she was, she was such a champion of my music. She loved my my music and my writing and and was always like trying to write together write with me and and every every chance she ever had to showcase me she did and so it was it was really uh really really nice and uh and i love playing in that band and i loved uh i, I love the music we still occasionally write music together and she she sang on a recent recording uh that started out as a song uh, that we wrote way back in the day, like we were, we were just playing with. Um, and I finally got to about four years ago and, 
and and she's just she's just the best. I mean, she's just so so good. And and one of the she's up there in Nashville, make you know writing songs and 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 I hope someday that she will get the recognition that she deserves because she's she's in that category of people that that should have that kind of recognition. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, when you're thinking about writing music, right? When you're writing it solo versus when you're writing it with a partner, what do you think is the biggest difference for you in that process? I don't write well with a partner in the same room. Um, generally, I think for me, I'm better off. I'm, I'm more of a lyricist, I, I think, at heart. Uh, I've I've written a ton of songs, but I, the songs that I've written with Diane tend to be ones where she wrote the melody, sent me the sent me a recording, and then I wrote lyrics to it. Uh, we've written a couple songs in the same room. Uh, Rob and I, Rob Elba and I, uh, wrote in the same re- room uh, a bit for for a portion of the Rat Opera, and that was fun. But um, but mostly I've written by myself. So I, I I found the like, hey, let's get in the same room and 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 work this out to be be a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, it, it, I don't feel uh, uh, used to it, and maybe I, maybe repetition would help. But I I I tend to just like to think about it a little bit more and work it out and 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 write to that to write right in my little hole <laughs> sure you mentioned rob alba earlier you mentioned him again so i think it's safe to talk about rob at this point so yeah uh, <laughs> so rob, you know, man i i, I want to say i was 19 when i first met rob rob uh we I, we instantly clicked and became friends and and i was just a huge huge holy terrors fan i mean that uh I I loved loved that band. I tried to anytime they were playing, and I was able to get out there. I would go see him, and and uh, I knew all the songs. I loved it. Um, what was it about their music that really connected with you? It was the dynamics of it. The Rob's ability to to explode on stage. I mean, a t- besides the fact that he had this great wry wit about him you know i loved his trolling of people and and it was just it was just a fun show from an from an overall entertainment standpoint it wasn't just the music it was also the personality of the band and 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 in each of the players that brought a, a different aspect to that but uh the musicianship was always incredible i mean every musician in that band uh you know i saw the tail end of of uh you know Frank's playing, but but it was mostly Will for me. You know uh, that on bass, that his bass playing is just enormous, and he plays everything he plays on. He he fills a space in a way that that very few bass players I've played with do. Debbie Duke is the other one that I play with a lot that does that. She's just got her own thing. But Will in this kind of music just just is a monster and. And Dan Hosker, uh, the late Dan Hosker, was was brilliant, experimental, hard to pin down. Like it was, it was hard to describe why he was so good, but he was extraordinary in in creating sounds that that were like him. And it's like he was, he was definitely one of the guitar players that I think about that uh, had had his own sound so distinctively in the scene. Um, uh, and then you had Sam, uh, and, and a series of great drummers after Sam, but, uh, but, you know, Sam Fogarino, who is, who shit, I think in, in many ways, 
helped shape that band just by being as good as he was and, and allowing those dynamics to exist as hard as they did, you know, uh, but his Rob's ability to, to explode on stage was something I loved. And, uh, and I just, I just did, uh, you know, he became a big brother to me. Uh, you know, it was, it was funny, a quick story. We, we were playing one of the music festivals and my dad was with me and, and I brought him out and I don't think he had seen Rob live before. I'm not sure. But uh, but Rob was a jeweler and I had come to Rob for my wedding band for my first my first wedding, like for, and was pointing out to uh, to my dad. Rob was playing an acoustic, not acoustic set, he was playing like a solo set on his electric. And I I pointed out to my dad like, hey, that's that's the guy that's doing my wedding band. And my dad thought that Rob Elba was going to be my wedding band, like like the performer at my wedding. <laughs> he was looking at me. Well, wait a second. Was he not? Was he not? What the hell is this going to be? You know? Was he not impressed with Rob's playing? Or oh, what? he loves Rob's, but okay. it wasn't exactly you know, it wasn't exactly what the kind of stuff you'd have a wedding, right? So yeah, uh, so yeah, it was. But Rob, um, you know, Rob and I never played with each other ever uh, until later on, uh, long after. Uh, uh, probably 2009, I want to say, or so, 2008, 2009. I had started in 1996. Uh, there was uh, the idea of a rock opera about Rat Bastard, and, and the the gem the, the germ of this was it was a southeastern music conference. I was hanging out with Rat. We got lost in Tampa. Like we were just somewhere we were, we were drunk and lost in the middle of the city. And there were like these bands of rollerblader, like punk rollerbladers just through the streets, like some bad quadrophenia thing, <laughs> like a mod thing. Right. And we were getting lost and rat, rats like, yeah, I know where I'm going. You know? And, and it was just this crazy night. We wound up doing, um, in this hotel room with I don't know and and Renee and 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 uh, Renee Alvarez from Forget the Name and all these guys and Matt and Amanda Green and and just doing Tom to or sorry uh, John Tovar impressions and 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 smoking weed and having fun and so real quick uh, on that note because he recently yeah, passed away yeah. too you got any good John Tovar impressions you can do. <laughs> I love you. I mean, it's just like yeah, you know, and he falls asleep. You know, but poor guy had narcolepsy. But he, um, but he, and Tovar, I should say something about Tovar. Tovar was always generous. You know, I, everybody. There was a time where I wanted to get signed by John, and and it didn't work out. But uh, but John was such a nice guy and so generous with with his uh, with his help and um, his advice and whatnot. But uh, yeah, he was such a character. But uh, so anyway, the Southeastern Music Festival happens. We're having this great, crazy night. And I'm, I'm in the middle of this thing with Rat. And I'm like, this guy is just absolutely insane. He's such a character. And and I wrote the song Lost in Tampa. And then it, I had and then the, I, I wrote about three or four more songs uh, about the laundry room squelchers and all these like noise activities and, and this this thing. And then I was talking to Rob about it and I don't know what prompted us to decide to take a look at it and revive it, but I sent it to him and then suddenly he wrote some more songs to it. And then we still wrote some more songs together. And then we were fleshing this whole thing out and we came with this, up with this stupid storyline where 
Well, what happened was, is that Fernando Perdomo, my friend Fernando, uh, uh, who I've recorded with since, but back then he was just this, uh, you know, guitar player who had worked with Renee and some others and was getting, you know, building some steam in his career. And, and he made some comment about noise music, not being real music or something like that in, in the new times and it set off a fire. It was something that seemed a little disparaging to rat and it set off this firestorm. Right. And, and for a moment, like Fernando almost got doxxed. And so, so we, Rob and I thought this whole thing was funny. So we wrote this storyline where, where Fernando uh, in protest comes up with something called quiet noise, right? As a goof. And, and it, you know, like this, wrote this whole thing about rat and his crazy girlfriend. And, and it was all fiction. We just wrote this whole stupid idea of rat rat growing up and, and idolizing Robert Pollard from guided by voices. Cause he was such an evangelist for, for, for guided by voices and Pollard. And, and we, so Robert Pollard became his, his ghost advisor, essentially, even though Pollard was still alive and, uh, you know, but advising rat in his bedroom on how to be cool and, and rat just going with it. And then Fernando getting in a fight with him and this whole thing coming together. So we wrote this whole stupid idea and then in, in the process, put about 14, 15 songs together that were, that were awesome and fun. And, and, uh, and very different than anything I or Rob had ever written. I think we Rob was a little bit more used to writing about other people, but this was, this was so focused and such a concept album that like I had never written about anything other than myself uh, or my imaginary self. Right. It was something, it was something always very cathartic or self-reflecting or, or whatever. And the other, and occasionally I would write about world hunger. You know, I got into this whole thing about war uh and and i would write about that but i never wrote about something fun and rot and rap became that and so we just went with it and we got the guys from we got uh two guys from uh from quit and and uh, andre and russell and and then we got will on bass and uh and how did you how did you recruit other people to join in on oh, this I, I don't even know if, i don't know that's a good question i don't remember i think we just we just sent them the songs and said, uh, I mean, Will at the time was like, like, yeah, I'll play with that. Yeah, of course. But uh, I don't remember how we got Andre or, or Russell, but we got in, a, we had our first rehearsal. We sent them the songs and we had their first rehearsal at Andre's uh, work. And, and it, it was the, immediately the best band I had ever been in. I mean, immediately. I mean, the musicianship that everybody, we, we have recordings of some of it from that first rehearsal session. And Rob and I got back in the car and we're like, holy shit, this is, this is good. And, uh, and, and we should do this. And that's, and that became, then it just got out of control. Then we started inviting like guest stars to sing and, and uh, tried to put on a theatrical play, <laughs> you know, then it, then it turned, went sideways in a, in a fun way, but, it, but, it, but, uh, the record is is a is one of my the favorite things I've ever done and and it was and it was a hard Bobby McIntyre mixed it Rat Rat recorded it Bobby mixed it uh, it was an adventure to say the least but uh, but man the, the 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 playing on it's fun and and uh, it gave me a chance to flex some of my my uh, wannabe punk rock uh, things I think also some of the titles are interesting like you've got 
glory hold bastard ghost <laughs> as a as <laughs> as a as a, uh, as a title uh, a boy called rat uh yeah you know you there's the ballad that's of origin the- story <laughs> <laughs> that's from the perspective of his mom wondering what's going wrong with this kid you know and uh diane ward played his mom in the in the i in, saw that did the the cinema paradiso uh theatrical attempts we we uh we did the stuff um you know and, and uh i should mention javi javi caviero uh did all the he at the time he worked for the miami heat and and he was in charge of all their displays and whatnot and so he did this great like backdrop of of multimedia displays incorporating rat and pictures that we had solicited from other people and we we had all these stories we put a, a an all call for like give us your stories about rat you know and it and, and it was we got stuff back like talking about how someone tried to pull a gun on him just to get him to stop with the noise stuff at Churchill's once, <laughs> like, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Was there any stories that you just couldn't use? I think we used all of the, the most interesting ones, but some of it was just stuff that people would like, he would say to him. I, I think it was, I think it was Jim Camacho and I apologize if it's not, but I think it was Jim Camacho of the goods, another band that I loved uh, back in the day. And, and uh, he had said something to, to him that was like, you people that are in local music or that, that listen to local music uh, should tell your friends in bands that they suck because they do. And, and maybe that uh, maybe that knowledge that they suck will get them to get better. Right. <laughs> like it was something to that. I'm paraphrasing because it was much more elegantly said, but uh Rat was a really important figure in my life. I mean, he he obviously did the record that helped me get signed, but but he was always the one that was pushing me not to listen to the stuff that I was listening to and to to listen to something else and to and he was opening up new um new th- new artists and new ideas to me that, you know, 20 years later when you go back and and I think about, yeah, I was arguing I was a big U2 fan. I loved The Edge. And I, you know, he was like, U2, man, they were just, you know, just copiers of Echoes and Echo and the Bonnie Man. And they were copiers of this person. And he's got such a musical uh, uh, encyclopedia in his head that, uh, but he, a lot of the things that he said about what would last and what was really truly creative have uh, withstood the test of time. Um, some of what he said is complete, absolute insanity and shouldn't <laughs> listen to it. But that, but a lot of it was <laughs> what, did, what did he think of this opera? Because you got to think, right? It's oh, not true. every day when someone's going to create this level of theatrical, uh, you, know, you know, performance of for someone's life. You know, even if it's just fantasy or or fiction, right? So, what did he think of all this? Like he was sitting there in the front row. He loved it. I mean, I mean Rad. You know, Rat loves us. He gets he loves the attention. I mean, he's Rat. You know, <laughs> he deserves it. He was such a you know he he helped so many artists down here, and that was the thing. He was in, consequential for the Mavericks and Marilyn Manson and uh, and and so many others, and and uh, and and all of the bands that even had a shot in this genre owe something to Rat whether it was load or the holy terrors or us or or arlen or you know everybody was has some part of their time in the scene where rat was important to us diane same thing you know and uh and so he 
I don't even know why he liked any of my music. I mean, honestly, it wasn't anything like what he would listen to uh, or what he was playing, but he generously spent a lot of time with it. Uh, later on, I wound up recording with, uh, you mentioned him earlier, but Oz Fritz, who, who, um, uh, was with Tom Waits. He was he engineered Mule Variations and uh, some of his later recordings. He was at the time his Tom Waits' live engineer, and I fell in love with Mule Variations. I mean, I was always a Tom Waits fan. My my dad was a huge Tom Waits fan, and it, so it was always playing in my house. And my dad loved the lyrics and analyzing it, much like Dylan. And and Tom Waits represented that that leading edge of experimentation for me. I mean, I I was. I would tell my drummers like like no symbols. Let's just like no symbols, just play all the times. And they were looking at me like, what what the, what are we doing? You know, and uh, but it was all Tom Waits influences. And uh, and so after I had gotten dropped, I before Rat Opera, but in this middle period, I reached out. I found Oz's email somewhere on the internet, and I reached out, and I'm like, I absolutely love the sound of this album, like. I need to know more, you know, would you ever potentially record with other people? And, and uh, it started up a dialogue and a friendship. And ultimately I wound up recording in, uh, he wound up flying to South Florida and, and recording us. And uh, thanks to working at a copy place, I met this guy who was um, his girlfriend and I worked together and he was an engineer at criteria. His name is Mark Craig. And Mark was asked, to John Henry is now the owner. I don't know if he's still the owner of the Red Sox, but at the time he was the owner of the Marlins and he was a big music fan. And he built a world-class recording studio in the middle of like this corporate building in Boca off a of broken sound. And uh, it was unbelievable. Neve board, this beautiful, beautiful recording studio, hot, top of the line. He also built one on his yacht. I'm not sure why, but, 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 uh, but he had one on the on recording, I, like on the yacht. You've got ropes squealing. I have no idea how this thing. Works. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I never heard so, of that before. Oh, so it was so dumb. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the idea was they were going to to start a record label and and record there, and they used me as one of the beta testers of the recording studio, thanks to Mark Craig and and his work and and. Uh, and so Oz came in and we had this Neve board and we recorded this album, you know, or five songs or six songs that, that were going to go to this album. And I, and then I recorded the rest out in California where Tom Waits was and in the, in this chicken ranch. If you listen, if you know Tom Waits and you know Mule Variations, there's like chickens in the, on the album and uh, particularly on, I think on Chocolate Jesus. And uh, there, there are roosters everywhere. Like there's just chickens everywhere on this ranch and, and, uh, I recorded in this little storage area that became known as the Tom Waits room. And so I was obsessed with this whole thing. And then I ran out of money. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, the required released the recordings, you know, unfinished and unmastered, but, but, uh, but it was a fun period. And, and, uh, and, but recording with, with those guys was so different than, you know, record with rat rats, like, yeah, then he presses the button and then falls asleep. Right. And uh, and that's one of the songs on the rat op is rat takes a nap, you know, uh, <laughs> but which is which, you know, you mentioned a lot of it was could be fiction, but that was true. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a mix of. Uh, yeah. 
yeah. blurred the line between what was real and what wasn't. So yeah, yeah. So so it was you know it was fun. Like Russ Rogers was playing bass for us. He Russ Rogers, another guy, Dot Fash and the Numb Ones, and and uh, a fantastic singer songwriter. Well, he's not a singer. He was like in, in, it was a different kind of genre, but he was a great singer and a great songwriter. Yeah. So he was playing and we had so much fun in the studio because it was it, we had all the time in the world. We we it was world class, you know, I'm playing on incredible instruments and and uh Jack Shoddy, uh who was our the guitar player in my band and Diane Ward's band, also somebody that would spend enormous amounts of time being helpful and helping me produce and 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 whatnot. Just just fantastic uh musician. Uh is that and, what became Tumble Man? Is that yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, Di- I mean, basically it was like Diane Ward's band in reverse. It was the same personnel. Yeah. We, just, we just, we just put me in front and Diane on the, on the drums and, and, uh, and kind of shuffled everybody or, or Chris Sheldon actually was, was, was a drummer for a while. Uh, and, uh, and until he moved away and, um, and I, I had, uh, my cousin Sierra played guitar in it for a little bit, but, but that was, that was just my, the label I threw on, on top of that era of music, but it was, it was, it was fun. But Jack, Jack and I, uh, we didn't always uh, see eye to eye, but, but, um, but Jack was uh, again, one of those people that, uh, was a champion uh, of, of, of things. I was very lucky. There were, there were a few people here, you know, in, in every stage of the career that that spent a lot of time promoting me, uh, or whether it was on stage or 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 out, you know, uh, or championing me in the press. Or you know, I had the guy, this guy Eric Klein from inside the music business, who was uh, very very proactive about trying to get me press and 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 help me out. And uh, it, ne- you know, look, it never it never really got going after mercury but but the rat the rat opera stuff was a lot of fun and and uh but i i also think that i had at that point i decided that i probably wasn't going to going to make it you know like i was I, I think i was i was still trying to get something going but i was also in school and then i was working and i started my own business and it was it, you know life started to take over and i realized that that perhaps I wasn't going to be the kind that was going to be able to jump into a van and go travel the country and, and play show to show after show after show and build and build this, the organic way, which is yeah. what, what a lot of people really needed to do. But after that luck had run out and that first thing, it just wasn't going to, going to happen again. You know? Sure. Yeah. I can understand that looking back in retrospect. Right. So you think back though, to, you mentioned, you played a lot of gigs in South Florida. You said you didn't do a ton of touring, except maybe with like Diane's band. Did you ever yeah. play any shows though throughout Florida and other and, and and you know besides South Florida, any other places in the state that you remember playing at? God, I, I don't remember the names of places. There were places in Tampa. There were places in Gainesville. We played. Uh, I know with Diane, we wound up doing. I think it was a. Latchville County Music Festival, like it's big giant stage. I did a bunch. Like we opened up with a bunch of different people with Diane, but on my on my own, no. I mean, I would go play acoustic shows in different places, and and in California, I did some in L.A. Uh, but but really, I I was just recording and trying to, you know, trying to get a local buzz going, and then just sure, yeah. But you know, this I think it's typical. You get to a certain age, 
and I heard Rob talk about it on his interview with you where he was older, you know, he had kids, he didn't really want to be on the road. You know, he probably started having back problems, you know, he's not going to sleep on a couch. Um, but, uh, but I, uh, I, I think I got to a point where I was just like, I, I knew there were people that were going to work harder and had, had equal talent, if not more talent. And, uh, but they were singularly devoted to this, this thing. And I don't think at, at after a certain point, the rat opera brought me back a little bit because I thought that the record was that we did was like the best thing I'd ever done. And I thought there could be some idea. Like we, we went, we went on a, uh, on a little journey of sending this to people that did musicals and trying to get a musical production going. And, right. and, and again, you know, time ran out, we got busy with work and, and it was just hard to, to do both things effectively. The people that, uh, people like Fernando Perdomo, who has been grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding. I mean, th- they've achieved success because they've been, do- they had that singular focus. And, and I do believe unless you're extremely lucky, you need that. You need to treat it as if you have no other option or else you're not going to uh, get quite as far unless sure. you're extremely lucky or extremely connected. You know? Yeah. You definitely wrote a lot of songs. You know, you have a pretty vast catalog of music. We, you released uh was it three albums? I mean, technically three. I, I released an, an album of, uh, of like on the internet that was just a random assortment of stuff. And then uh, uh, in addition to that, but the um, w- like the lost Oz sessions of uh, uh, that we, that we put out, but, um, but then we did rat opera was the, was the, the fourth real, yeah, yeah. real album. And then uh and that's it. I, you know, I, I wrote, I co-wrote some songs on Diane's stuff and, and, uh, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, it was a fun ride. And, uh, you know, I still, I still dip down there occasionally. I played the Hosker, uh, fundraiser, uh, Dan Hosker music con- continuum. Uh, I've got to play it with my son and Rob and, uh, and, Fausto, nice. and Fausto from, uh, from load. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's there's a whole network of people when you come back and and you go go play that just congeals back together and it's it's wonderful mark dubin's now uh helping to lead the scene i think a little bit and rob moved out here so uh so you know rob and i are are 20 minutes away from each other we never oh wow (laughs) (laughs) we're 20 minutes away from each other now here in la so so the scene carries on i guess Churchill's is done, you know, we're, we're, uh, a lot of the anchors are gone and, uh, and new ones pop up, but, uh, but I'm sure there's a rat still, you know, leading, he's still pied, the pied piper in some respect down there. He's, he's doing something. <laughs> After all these years, he's still at it. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's fun. You know, it's, it's, it, it's fun stuff. I, I've, I, I wrote a few songs uh, over the last few years that I've recorded with uh, Fernando, who is also out here and is, has a wonderful, he's a wonderful engineer and studio uh, technician and, and just one of the greatest musicians I've ever played with because he plays everything. So you go there and he, you'll just lay down the rhythm tracks with of the song that you wrote and, and help you fill out the whole thing. He's almost, he's like a one man band. And so, so he and I have done some stuff together, which is not specifically South Florida, but it's, it's rooted in all of South Florida's uh, history. Right. So, 
you got to create a song that's a homage to your Florida days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny as you, um, you know, I write for a living now and, uh, my life is, uh, this last year has been, uh, been a challenge. We lost, we lost one of my best friends and the guy, and a guy that I was, uh, I've known for 40 years, one of my friends from, uh, from middle school even, but, but he was my outlet for playing music out here. I used to go down and we, we'd go, through the garage band and jam out and try new things. And, and he passed this last year. And, and so I hadn't been writing because life is, you know, it was challenging, but, it, but, but a lot of the things that you write back in the day were, were, were cathartic ways to deal with, you know, whatever depression or challenges you had or, or whatever it was. And, and um, as you get older, I don't have the same thoughts. And so I don't, and I'm, I'm less patient with myself. I don't want to listen to myself. Right. So even though I've talked much, <laughs> I talk a lot, but, but, but I, but I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to read my own stuff anymore sure. as much, but now in the wake of this guy's passing, I, I've had this feeling of maybe there's some, some new songs coming or something, something about that uh, or him or, or whatever that, that that's welling up. But I, but I generally don't write when I'm, when I'm, uh, moderately happy <laughs> you got to be in the right frame of yeah. mind and all that yeah, and, and also like you're doing it for yourself at this point right? right you're doing it you're doing it because you enjoy recording or enjoy playing with others or you're you know i'm not trying to i'm not going to write a hit song you know i'm not trying to write a hit song i, I i'm not trying to get signed so a lot of the the things that would have driven you to, to be disciplined back in the day and sit down and actually, okay, I'm going to keep writing and keep refining and do, you know, it's like, okay, well, am I, how am I going to spend my time today? Sure. I totally understand that. And, uh, but it's good that you have the songs that you've put out there and uh, if we'll put in the description uh, links to your band camp and also uh, yeah. your website and all that. So there's a lot of great songs to tap oh, into. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. It's, it's been fun to, the one nice thing about being a sideman or, 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 or sideman or, or uh, having intersected with all of these different artists. And I, you know, there's so many, I didn't mention that were, that were helpful to me. I don't know uh, Humbert, those guys, you know, um, uh, were, were, were huge. The goods I mentioned earlier, but they were, they were very supportive. Um, uh, Robbie Jeanette, uh, you know, there's when you intersect and play with these guys in some form or fashion over, over, over 30 years or 20 years or whatever it was uh, you get a sense of the scene more. So if you've, if you've actually played with people and uh, and I've, I've been lucky to play with so many different people that have been so kind uh, over the years that um, that it's uh, it's fun to look back on because it was such a, a, a collaborative scene overall. And uh and it, you miss that when you get older and everybody's stops working together and stops hanging out two nights or three nights a week, you know, at the bar, uh, you know, talking about music and what you're doing next and listening to each other's latest stuff or, or latest experiments. I mean, that's, that's where I think that, you know, when you look back nostalgically, that, that was the, the best time because we were, we were being creative and we were, we were trying to one up each other and we were, we were, having 
fun doing it. And there was, and it wasn't, it wasn't mean. We just wanted to be seen and, and, and get something going. So we didn't have to get real jobs. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and later on, of course we get real jobs and, and, you know, but it, and it's fine. But that, <laughs> I love what I do, but you know, but that is, but that is kind of, that is kind of where things start to kind of separate a bit, right? You start to, you know, you yeah. take on your career, you have a family and all that. So people move away. So it yeah, does- I wanted to get, you know, like you want to get laid, right? That's a guitar player, right? <laughs> Early on, right? It was about getting girls, right? Getting attention, expressing yourself, right? You know, and 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 having a living that you enjoyed. Right? Sure. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like now, okay, I've got, you know, thankfully, and, and, and thankfully I got, you know, got a girl, I got a wonderful wife, you know, I've got, you know, I got a job that I enjoy, and so I, you know, it's it's hard for me to write a country song right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And you used to joke about that. I'm watching some of your some of some of the videos. You oh, would you so would overwrought. You would joke about. <laughs> I guess at one point you may have been living in Davie, and you would joke oh, about yeah, yeah. having having to write uh, a country song or two. And uh, yeah. so, for anybody you, listening that doesn't know Davie, Davie is like the, a town in southeast Florida that 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 tries desperately to, to like hold on to its kind of country roots, right? So, like, like if you live in Davie, like you might have a horse. And you might listen to country music more, or you're more likely to have both, I guess, than the surrounding areas and maybe Southwest ranches now, which didn't exist for a while. But uh, but Davy's like this country thing, and so it's like when I was living there, I was like everybody associated Davy with country, and it's and uh, it's like a square mile, or I don't even know how big Davy is. <laughs> Uh, that's what I I always appreciated that about Davy because it was a lot like other parts of Florida, uh, especially you go out. You right. know, it, it was you know it was very like that. It so. was trying to desperately hold on to what Florida used to be exactly above, outside of like the Miami Cuban influence, right? It was yeah. that that and uh, and it, and it was it, it's darling how they have managed to like both have an IKEA. Oh, well, that was technically sunrise, I guess, but right across the right across the way was <laughs> was like my house, right? And then Davy was, you know, you walk and there were certain places where they still have those those things that you tie horses to, right? And uh, but yeah, I used to. Ju- I mean, I, I wrote like two two songs or three songs that I would easily qualify as country songs in my life, and and uh, it was fun. It's always fun. To, yeah, yeah. yeah. As we get ready to close things out, Brian, firstly, I want to say thanks again for being a great guest. It was wonderful having you on. Thanks for uh, to, having me. You're welcome to tell the story of yourself and the journey that you've taken, you know, because, yeah, you know, we can look back and say, well, you know, this didn't work out. But a lot of people never get that opportunity to. Oh, I was very lucky. Even yeah. have even have a label even consider them for a second. And you got to play for the dude in his gym shorts, you know. So, yeah, no, it's, I, I, yeah, you know, you, you, when you're a kid. And I think this is where I've evolved to when you're a kid, you imagine just getting on stage, just being able to play your instrument, just to be able to have a band with the kinds of musicians that, that, that I was surrounded with, to be able to open up for or play with some of my favorite musicians. Even to this day, I listen to, to these people's music and uh, to, um, to, to have those opportunities to play in front of uh, crowds, to have people come out and actually deliberately come and listen to you that aren't your parents uh, uh, or or your closest friends 
that's an honor. And I think when you look back uh, at your life and you say, okay, this was a great period of time. And I don't, I don't look back and go, Oh, what, what could have been I, as much as I look back and go, okay, well, that was the thing you should have done. Right. If you want, you know, like you, you, you go back and you play, make it a little bit, you go, okay, I should have done that, but I don't right. think that it should have happened or, and, and I'm not mad at it, at it. I just, I'm very honored and lucky to have had it at all. Sure. And, uh, and, and blessed with both opportunities and luck and, uh, a little bit of sense, but, but not enough, but, but, but no, I look back, I look back very, very happily at those times and, uh, and very grateful. But as we kind of close things out, any last words you want to share to supporters, fans, friends? Well, I just, yeah. I, I just want to thank the people that were so, uh, particularly kind in those days obviously jen and jen and evie from uh from in-house uh magda hiller diane ward zach um matt sabatella uh rich Uloa, um uh, eric klein dale kawashima these people that uh that jim murphy melissa regary who wrote about todd anthony uh these people that took the time to to promote and to champion me uh the people in my band uh, uh jack shoddy uh jordan lash jim J- jim jones uh darren coleman chris um sheldon uh, debbie duke uh people that really uh helped uh make this fun for me uh, just, I'm just grateful, uh, for their, for their time and for their efforts. And, and, um, you know, I, I didn't really talk about Marianne, but Marianne, like, uh, she was, she was so helpful in, in opening up doors, uh, Marianne Fleming, uh, you know, there's so many people. So I, I just want to thank those people for making it easy for me because it was, it, it, I was able to just walk in and, and, and grab a guitar and um you know alex diaz these guys that were just so cool so i'm, I'm so grateful
Fuck!